I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This week's episode has a trigger warning for potentially upsetting subject matter. Check the show notes at www.bitchesoncomics.com to find out more. Hey, everybody. Here we are. Another glorious morning for us. I don't know when you're listening to it, but for us, (laughs) it's very early and it is still Pride Month. So happy Pride yet again. I am Sarah Century. I am one of your hosts. I was going to call myself illustrious, but then I was like, take it back a step. So no, I'm Sarah Century. No, 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 no. Don't take it back a step. What are you talking about? Kate, Kate, cut that. Go back. Introduce yourself properly. You know what? No, I veto that. Keep all this. This is perfect. All right. This is very much the vibe of the pod. I am the illustrious Sarah Century, um, one of the hosts of the illustrious podcast, Bitches on Comics. We are the lovely bitches. Yes. With me, there is another illustrious host. Hello, dear listeners. I'm S.E. Fleetor, and you've already heard the voice of our guest today. I am super pumped to introduce Carmen Maria Machado. Carmen, thank you so much for being here with us today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. I mean, you already have made a great impression. We all want Sarah to hype herself a bit more. Sarah is, <laughs> as I like to say, the tits. So, um, yeah. No, it's 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 really, honestly, it's so cool to have you here. And I just want to do a quick shout out to Juliet, your assistant. Juliet has helped us arrange this. And I think you had a scheduling snafu. My power went out one day. It's been a wild <laughs> ride, but we yeah. are here. We're queer. Get used to it. Um, but Juliet thank is you, Juliet. Yes, <laughs> yes, Juliet. <laughs> And what a what a like lovely person, yeah. lovely. So yeah. shout out to Juliet. Um, yeah, well, you know, we are going to talk about so many things today. <laughs> I think it's safe to say, but I want to start talking a little bit about you were like this little weird kid, right? Who would just tell these stories, and your grandfather told you a lot of stories. Yeah, I've been creeping on you. I've been reading the interviews. I've been <laughs> you the really have. Story. <laughs> so I would love to hear about you know when did. When did you see yourself first as a storyteller? And is there anything from that first time that you still carry with you, you think? Oh, like the moment when I began to think of myself as like a writer or like began to sort of Or like, narrative? you know how like there's that pre-writer moment, like when you're little and it's just more pure and it's just like, I have to tell people stories. Maybe I'm looking oh, for that yeah. moment. Sure, yeah. I mean, I definitely am one of those sort of annoying people who like was doing that from the very beginning. I mean, I... I was read to a lot as a kid. Like, that was, like, a big priority sort of in my household. My, my parents were not themselves huge readers, but, like, I was just read to constantly as a kid, and there was a lot of storytelling happening. My grandfather would tell me stories. My father had a running series of stories he would tell me when I was small called the Bosmo stories. Bosmo the Beamish Boy, who was, like, this little fictional sort of Peter Pan-type figure who lived in the woods. You know, I was just kind of getting these stories, like, very intensely, and... um and then, yeah, I remember at some point, like, writing, it had to have been in, like, first grade, like, writing a story about a girl milking a cow and, like, a teacher's aide getting very excited, like, being like, what is this thing you've written? And I was like, there were just, like, details. I'm sure I took it from something that I actually had read. Like, I, you know, I'm sure I did not invent this, like, image. Like, I, it was just this very, like, evocative, I think, just, like, scene of, like, a, a girl milking a cow. But I remember this person being very excited and being like, oh, my God, you're, you know... And I remember just, like, that response was really special to me. So it wasn't even just the act of writing, but, like, the act of then someone responding very positively to it and being like, I like this, tell me more. And I was sort of off like a shot. You know, I spent my whole childhood, like, I think so many kids, like, rewriting the stories and poems and things that we already liked. So, like, you know, I spent time, you know, quote-unquote writing poems that were just, like, Shel Silverstein poems kind of recast. And I would even, like, draw little <laughs> pictures, like, where the sidewalk ends and a light in the attic. Um, or like roll doll stories or whatever, you know? And so, yeah, I was just like a really voracious reader, really voracious writer. My, my dad would, my dad would bring home stationery from his work and I had this, I liked to make books out of it. And so I would, you know, I'd tear off the pages and like write a book and then I'd staple it and like make it into a book. And there was this very kind of infamous one in my family where I wrote a story called The Biggest Turkey Who Can't Find the Farm. And it's about a turkey who... <laughs> It gets lost and it's like many pages of the turkey being in various settings and being like, is this, <laughs> is this my home? And it's like, he's at a zoo, he's in like a hotel and he's like all over the place. And there's like little signs for like a lost turkey kind of everywhere, like behind him, but he can't see it. And then the very end of the story, you sort of turn and then he, oh, for then he gets to the farm. He finally finds the farm. He's like, is it here? And he's like, yes, yes, this is it. And then he turned to the final page and it was just a roast turkey on a platter. And it said... <laughs> <laughs> And the last line of the story was, I wish I did not come here. And that was like the final line. 
parents were like completely horrified. And also I'm sure that I, I got that idea from someone. Like I'm sure I was like, oh, that's like a funny ending is like the turkey gets to where he's going only to like leads to his own death. You know? <laughs> um, my parents were just I like, mean, huh, okay. That is echoing through so much of your work. I know. I day, was just going to say, yeah. I wrote so much as a kid that I have, I still have a lot of it. Like I have all these like, and it's like reading it. I'm like, man, my interests have not changed. Like it's like supernatural stuff, like angels, brain tumors, like body horror, like, you know, horrifying endings. Like it's like, it's like really... I am the same person in the same way that like when you read a report card from your childhood and you're like, man, this is just me in a nutshell. Like the teacher is just <laughs> describing me as an adult, but I'm just older, you know? And it's like the same thing. It's like, obviously my writing style has changed somewhat, but like my interests unchanged completely. So. <laughs> That's so funny. I love the way that you're talking to you about how it's like somebody tells you something about yourself whenever you're a kid and you're, here's my storytelling. And somebody's like, this is good. And it reminds me of you and all of this. And I think about that because it just like reminded me of this time whenever I was a kid and people were like, yeah, you know, Sarah, the class clown. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, and it's like, then you have to become funny kind of after that because right. you're just like, oh, no, they're like reading you in a weird way. And it yeah. does kind of change how your life goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, actually, Sarah, I have to say, how have we never talked about the fact that we were both voted class clown? <laughs> I mean, how has that never come up? And with, I'm not going to lie. With me, I see it because I, I was, was just shocked. Like, Everyone look at the jokes. Don't look at the pain. Look at the jokes. <laughs> and so like that was how I coped as a child. But I am very surprised to hear it with you. I think in my mind, you were Wednesday Adams as a kid. Like that's the only way I picture you. <laughs> that's it. I was really morose. And so I was reading like <laughs> Edgar. Like, that's and hilarious. Poe. And I'm like, was it? Like, are you sure? Because I thought I was making a bleak observation about life. And people are like, you're so funny. You're just so oh, funny. And I'm just like, okay, I guess I'll like lean into humor then. Um, <laughs> it's you like know, you're I getting like feedback. Out. You're getting feedback from your brand or something. You're like, oh yeah, I guess I'll like try to cultivate that a little bit more um yeah. you're really connecting with the humor audience as a child <laughs> if you could really like you know gear your work toward them you're like fine clown makeup i'm in i got it <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking too that a lot of the stories that i've read by you are short stories and short stories really do thrive on having those devastating endings. You have these really like kind of a short space to be like, okay, and now I'm going to, you know, I don't want to say that there's no characterization in short stories because that's so wrong. But I think that you have just such a limited space to do it. Right. Totally, and so you're totally. kind of zipping through some things, but it's to this greater purpose of like, and then I'm going <laughs> to the turkey at the end. <laughs> so because that's that's now like a literary term is like the turkey at the end basically <laughs> I mean I think you know I also read a lot of Ray Bradbury when I was a kid like he was really really formative for me like I would check out the same Ray Bradbury short story collection like from the library constantly and I feel like that sort of yeah the way the short story kind of gives you this space to just like get in and get out and like create this like experience that's like really sort of ephemeral but powerful and it's kind of like getting like 
kicked in the teeth. Whereas, like, yeah. reading a novel is, like, being, like, beat up for hours, right? Yeah, it's like a totally yeah, different yeah. experience. <laughs> like, you know, and, and and both have their own whatever, like, their own qualities. But, like, yeah. if, for me, and I'm also saying this to somebody who's, like, I'm trying to write a novel right now. And it's, like, really fucking hard because it's, like, writing a novel is hard and it's a totally different animal. Like, the whole way it's structured, it's not just, like, a longer short story. It's, like, yeah. totally, you know, the, the way you think about it just architecturally is completely different. But I definitely have this, like, just deep soft spot for short stories, both as a reader and as a writer as well. And I think, because, yeah, it permits that sort of moment of, like, I mean, God, I hate to say it because people roll their eyes, but, like, epiphany <laughs> or this moment of sort of, like, beauty or terror or, like, horror. And then you're just, go- and then you're out, right? And then the person is just, like, what happened, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it's a good feeling. <laughs> it's like, yeah, here's this. I'm out, and then the reader is left to kind of have to be like, wait, oh my God, I'm going to go back over this. Like, I have to, right, yeah, I have to exactly. think about this again. Because I wanted to ask, too, because um, I read an interview where you were talking about Angela Carter. Uh, I've heard, like, you talk a little bit about some of your literary references, and some of them, a lot of them have been people who really thrive in short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent thing that I read from you was the short story that was in the Shirley Jackson inspired anthology. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting the name right now, but it's oh, like the name things... of the book is when things get dark. I only know when things get literally dark. behind me on my shelf so I can see it. But yes, when things get dark, a very solid title, but I definitely forgot it. Um, Cause yeah, the stories, they're so different and amazing. And I, I loved that idea of these kind of uh, anthologies that are around a writer or like themed anthologies, mm. which I always think mm-hmm. are really fun. I used to read all of these horror anthologies as a kid. And now I'm seeing that people are getting a lot more specific with it. I was part of an anthology that talks about, it was like based on David Cronenberg movies. So I was wondering mm-hmm. what the process for you was, because as you say, you took a Shirley Jackson story and then kind of did your interpretation. But I was wondering about it a little bit because obviously Shirley Jackson is such a master, but is also known for being kind of a hard to tap person, right? Like it's kind of hard to crack some of those stories and the brilliance of them is that, right? So I was just curious what your process with that was. So that story is based on, um, there's a moment. So one of my favorite novels, is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which if, yep. if listener, you have not read it, you must. It's or, you have it's, to. I mean, it's a really, it's a perfect novel. It's horrifying. It's beautiful. It's like really just I, I transcendent piece of art. It's perfect. Theodora. Um, the, yes, Theodora and, uh, and Eleanor. I mean, honestly, it's like Theodora's hot. I like, I've dated so many, so many Theos. I'm like, I know. I know. This is why I'm obsessed with her though. I'm like, we've all been the Nell. We've, we've all, we've been, all been the, the Nell in this situation. No, it's true. Oh my God. It's so good. Um, but yeah, so there's a couple of stories of mine that deal pretty directly sort of either formally or, or otherwise with Shirley Jackson's work. So I have, uh, you know, a, a story from my first, my first book, um, the story is The Resident, which sort of structurally kind of occupies the space around The Haunting of Hill House. Also, there's a short story I have called Blur, which came out in a Tin House and will be in my new book, which deals as a pretty direct sort of invocation of another favorite story of mine, of hers, which is The Tooth, which is in the book The Lottery. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very, very eerie short story about a woman who goes to have a dental procedure, and it's perfect. But so, you know, she's a writer who... She speaks to me in a lot of ways. I mean, I feel like also there's a quality to her writing, which I think is a quality that I find the most interesting as a reader, 
which is like stories that are so like there's so much happening sort of psychologically that there is like space for me, the reader, to enter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a result, there's space for me as a writer to like almost like push outward a little bit. And so in this short story, A Hundred Miles in a Mile, there's a very iconic scene in The Haunting of Hill House where Eleanor, who is on her way to the, to the haunted house that will sort of occupy mm-hmm. the majority of the book, and on the way she stops to get some lunch and she has this like very strange interaction with this young girl in a restaurant where she's observing this young girl refusing to drink milk out of a out of a glass and the the mother is explaining to the waitress that the reason she isn't doing it is because at home she has a cup of stars like a cup that has stars at the bottom and she drinks when she drinks her milk at home she sees the stars and it's very special to her. And so she won't drink anything that isn't her house of star or from her. Uh, she won't <laughs> drink anything that isn't in her cup of stars. And then Eleanor sort of is like, almost like trying to like meld minds with her. Like Eleanor's like watching the girl being like, don't let them do it. Like don't let them talk you out, yeah. of, your, out of your cup of stars. It's very important. And it's this like really just transcendently beautiful scene. Um, it's so hard to even explain how it works or why, which I, as you were saying is like a thing about Shirley Jackson. It's yeah. like, you're literally heading to a haunted house and like the majority of the novel is a haunted house novel, but like you're just having this like beautiful, like sad sort of moment in this restaurant that's kind of like also really transcendent. It's like very hard to explain. You never forget who Eleanor is after that though, right? Never. Like, oh that's yeah, no. Such it's, good characterization. Yeah. It's so clear. It's so beautiful. And so I've often thought about that scene and I've thought about that girl. Like I thought about the character of the girl. And I was like, so when they asked me to do story for the anthology is like you know I've always wanted to like write something I think a thing about me is that I I really am always interested in in little minor characters and imagining them sort of forward in time or like elsewhere in time like I just find that like this is true of like television shows I watch movies I watch books I read everything and so so yeah so I was like I wonder what would happen if like this girl grew into a woman and she even wouldn't be able to necessarily remember this moment. And also because, like, Eleanor wasn't actually speaking to her. Eleanor was, like, thinking at her. So, like, there's something kind of weird about that as well. So I wanted to write, like, a short story where I was imagining this girl trying to, like, articulate that that she had this, like, weird moment as a child that she can't even remember. Yeah. And so I wrote the short story kind of in response mm. to that. So it's That's like one of those connecting things where, like, stuff in my head right now. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Things just clicked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can read the story without knowing that, but I think knowing that, which I mean, the t- and the title is sort of a bit of a giveaway because like that, that line of a hundred miles in a mile is from that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the very introduction of that scene in the book. And so, yeah. And so it just was a moment where I got to just like I sort of had this thought and then the story just kind of came out pretty, pretty naturally because I was like then just sort of imagining this girl and imagining her as an adult and had to do a little bit of research about like gay bars in the mid-century and, you know, like just just like I had to do some like fun research about like Niagara Falls and like, you know, again, like in the 50s and 60s and it was fun. But like, yeah, mostly the story just sort of emerged because I was just imagining like what would that look like? And I feel like that what if is like so much of my process is like, if this, then what, you know? And I feel like that's just like how I get into stuff. Yeah, I thought that anthology was so good overall because I loved how many directions you can take, you know, a Shirley Jackson theme, right? It's just, I found it to be all over the place in the best way, you know, where you're just like, oh, what's happening now? I'm in this vibe. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. It's a great, it's a really good anthology. I really enjoyed it. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. 
And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You had the short story, The Resident. You brought that up and I thought that's in uh, your first collection. Mm-hmm. And I think that that story was so interesting for me, mostly perhaps because I've been a lesbian in a group of artists before. <laughs> it can get weird, right? But I just was absolutely obsessed with it. I thought so many things in it were really poignant and interesting. And one of the things was that conversation about how, oh, you're doing like Mad Woman in the Attic, but then is like, yeah, but aren't you kind of being like tragic lesbian too? And that's kind of overplayed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just found that to be so just observant, I guess, because I feel like that's something that happens to creators all of the time where you'll be talking about your own experience and somebody is like, that's overplayed. And you're just like, what are you talking? It's my life. <laughs> like, yeah. what? And you're trying to like kind of communicate that in a way. I thought that that was like just a fascinating story. So I was curious if you had any, because you wrote it like a while back now so have you had any new ideas on it have you like have you gotten some distance where you were like you know what I think this about it now yeah I mean I I will say like I I, first of all that I really love that story I mean I feel like this is probably true of most writers like I have varying relationships with my different stories and some of them I'm like I'm like oh I can do better you know and some of them I'm like I'm really proud of that story and like I could remain proud of it and like I remain very proud of the resident because I feel like when I was writing it I was doing a lot of stuff that was, like, new to me as a writer. I had the sensation of, like, oh, I'm, like, growing and, like, my capacity for creating sort of room and space in a story is, like, changing. And there was just, like, a lot of things happening when I was writing it. But, yeah, like, it was funny because I I did a very early draft, really, like, so early that I had never been to a residency. I was more imagining, like, I wanted to do a haunted house story. I wanted to set a story kind of away from the world. And, like, I was like, oh, people go to residencies. It's, like, a thing that happens. and so. I did that. And then as I went to residencies, then I began to like shape it a little more um, based on what I was experiencing. But it was funny because I took a very early draft to a, this workshop of like professional genre writers. And one of the other writers who was like an older woman, um, her response to the story was, was like, to this early draft was like, I tire, I remember, I never forget this. I mean, and I, I should say this, I'm not saying this in a way that like 
it wasn't like wrong of her to say this. Like she was perfectly entitled to her opinion, but she was like, I tire of mad woman in the attic stories. I just tire of them. And that, that was like her thought about the story. And I was like, well, fuck me. (laughs) I remember just leaving. I I was just like, oh no, God damn it. So I just like, and I remember just feeling like really torn because I was like, have I done something awful? And the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, I've also written like a mad lesbian story. Like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And so I was just feeling really in my head about it. I mean, that story took many years to finish, partially because it's so long. And I feel like it's one of those stories that was like kind of growing and becoming roomy to accommodate thoughts I was having kind of in real time, which I think happens with a lot of longer pieces, especially. But like, yeah. But then I was like, I had this thought and I couldn't get out of my head. And I was like, well, okay. So like if... Like, first of all, like, I love the tradition of, like, artist goes mad in isolated space. Like, that's a genre that I find very pleasurable as an artist who feels like she's going mad in isolated spaces. Um, and who, you know, like, when left alone with my own thoughts can go into some very strange places. I wanted to be able to write about that. And I, I think it was also this moment where I was, like, beginning to sort of, my relationship with the idea of, like, what do I owe to a reader? And, like, what do I owe to, like, my community and, like, as a writer? Which, to be clear, is nothing. Like, the answer to both of those things is nothing. Like, I owe nothing to a reader. I owe nothing to my community. Um, I write for myself. And I think I was in the moment of, like, realizing... And then I should put an asterisk on that because, like, if you ask me about the memoir, I have, like, a totally different answer that's, like, more complicated. But for the purposes of this fiction and this book in particular, I was like, you know, this is a book that... I want this book to please me. Like, I want this book to reflect sort of who I am as a writer, who I am as a person. You know, I was just in this like incredibly sort of formative moment of my of my life. And I was like, you know, I am, I am a fucking, I am a mad woman. Like I am a lesbian with mental illness. Like I don't know what to tell you. Like I am I not allowed to just write that? And so the way that I kind of dealt with all of these thoughts, which were just like sent me into a f- absolute hole which is, by the way, why you can't write for other people because you really truly will go into a hole that you'll never get out of. Um I was like, I'm just going to have the characters argue about it. (laughs) Put them in front of a nice dinner and I'm going to make them fight about it on the page. Uh, And that was like my sort of response to like trying to manage that. And so I feel like now I'm just more, more, I'm way more confident because, you know, when that happened, I was, I was probably 25 and I'm now almost 36. So I've got like a a decade plus under my belt and I like, I am not nearly as insecure as a writer as I was when I was 24, I'm 25. And so now I'm kind of like, yeah, well, fuck it. Who cares? (laughs) I'll write whatever I feel like. It's fine. Oh, man, that was such a meaty answer, Carmen. I feel like there's like 13 different directions we could go yeah. to talk about. Do we talk about being like, fuck it, I actually do know what I'm doing. Do we mm-hmm. talk about, you know, the the rest of the collection? But I think I think where I'm going to take us, and, and let, let's see, let's see if this feels fruitful for all of us is something that I remember that I, you know, I, I just finished in the dream house recently. I'll be honest. I had to really work myself up to it. Yeah, I'm a survivor course, yeah. of intimate partner violence uh, within the queer community. Uh, the book has helped me realize I have like a little bit more unpacking of that to do. Um, but also really, you know, and Sarah and I were even texting about this yesterday. Like I, I've done so much work in therapy. So let's get personal for a moment. Um, and it felt really scary to come back to thinking about trauma and abuse and intimate partner violence. And then when I did, it felt so healing to be in the space mm-hmm. of in the dream house mm-hmm. from a distance and say like, 
oh my gosh, this thing that I healed very personally, because I think some of that work has to be done as an individual, can also be healed communally. And Mm. that hadn't quite occurred to me, I don't think. So I think that that's First off, thank you for writing in the dream house that it's such a gift to give us. You you took on so much pain and I'm so grateful for it. And I mean, obviously, I wish none of that events had ever happened to you. I am not grateful for that. Um, mm-hmm. I am grateful for the writing. But there's something you wrote in, in the dream house that I think applies to her body and other parties. I think you were sort of winking as you wrote it. But you said, I got a claim for writing these and I can't remember the exact language you use, but disjointed narratives. I got, you know, people were like, wow, you really know how to break down a narrative. But what you said in in the dream house was, I didn't know any other way to write them because I had been broken or narratively broken. I don't think it was a capital B forever broken by any means. Um, you know, so that fractured piece, let's say. You know, there's something there, and I don't know if I have the question quite right, but there's some real power in taking where you're actually at And using that, instead of trying to carve away yourself to fit into what is, quote unquote, marketable, what is, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. what agents are looking for. Hey, I'm not here to hate on agents. Bless them. They do good work. But, you know, and and so often I think that's a silly sort of fallacy, too, because I don't think agents know what they're looking for always. They just find it and they're like, oh, my God, this this is the thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't have the words for this thing. So I guess, you know, what I'm asking is a little bit about the creative process, a little bit about being queer and and having huge mm-hmm. pain that we're using to create our art and and yeah. how did you reach that point of you know what fuck it like i am going <laughs> to write these fractured stories because that's that's the truth of what these moments yeah. are i mean <clears throat> first of all i want i do want to shout out to agents and my agent in particular kent wolf who i adore um and kent wolf is also like tori peter's agent i mean kent has like a really and samantha irby so like a really robust um and very cool very cool list. very cool like, very what the robust hell? <laughs> portfolio of like queer and interesting and like genre bendy stuff um and you know kent picks me up fairly early when like you know i i mean <laughs> I came out of the IO Writers Workshop and like nobody wanted any of my stuff. And I think partially, I mean, there's sort of no way to know exactly what it was, but partially it was, I was, you know, I was working on short stories, which are just simply not, people don't think it was very marketable. And I, you know, Kent was sort of unique in this way and that he seemed to like have a sense not only of like what I was doing, but like sort of had a vision for my career and, you know, picked me up even before I had a full book. And you know, I think that kind of vision, I guess that's what makes you a good agent, right? Is you just have a sense of like what you like and also like what a career could look like or a writer's sort of oeuvre could look like. But I think also, you know, part of it is that, I mean, whatever, people write for all kinds of reasons. Like I'm not here to like police why people write. I am interested in something really specific, which is, you know, a kind of, I feel like the word literary gets thrown around a lot in all kinds of ways, sometimes sort of snotty ways and also sometimes very scornful ways, neither of which I think are correct. Because I think that like, you know, when I think of literary work, I think of work that sort of accesses human consciousness or like creates some sort of, like has those, like that thing I was mentioning about Shirley Jackson, how there's like a place for me as a reader. Like I feel like sometimes when I read work that I guess you call more commercial it could be like fun and interesting and like, you know, I, I'm riveted and I read it and it's done, but there's no space for me as a reader. Like, I'm just like, you know, I'm along for a ride. I get off the ride. I'm like, great. That was great. You know, I don't need to reread that ever again, <laughs> Like, you know, but I feel like there's something about work that does have these like lacunae and does have these like little places where you can exist and push outward. And I think that, 
you know, figuring out like what you want to write about and what you, how you want to sort of occupy your own work. And I mean, that's been, I think at some point it was like me realizing like, I want to do this in a really specific way. And like on some level having to be kind of like, I'm going to do it no matter what. I mean, it's, but I do remember also like when I kept getting rejected for novel, you know, for not having a novel, I was like, I guess I have to write a novel. And then I'd try to write a novel and I'd be like, I don't know how to write a novel. Like, what am I doing? This is terrible. <laughs> um, and, you know, So it isn't like I didn't try, but like ultimately I think the work that feels immediate, like when you read a book and you're just like, fuck, it's like immediate, not in the sense that like necessarily it was written quickly. Though I think that actually sometimes can help. This is why like, I feel like short stories can be so interesting. But like, I just feel like work that feels like you are actually accessing some piece of a person that's been like sort of, you know, pushed through craft. So it's not like you're just getting like raw, uncensored thoughts, but like you're getting like a human's interiority as shaped by craft, which is like a really specific artistic experience, right? Like it's it's like... It's different than other artistic experiences. It's different than, it's why like, you know, it's just like all writing does not have the same goals. And I think for me, it was like, that's the goal that I have. It's like, I want that sensation of like style, like the, like the sentence level choices that I'm making are reflecting the, the psychological project. Well, I think also there's something about just like, you do what you're gonna, you're gonna do. Because I feel like, yeah, like there was a moment in my life when like, it was like really hard for me to do anything sort of in a long stretch, which is par- partially why I think I'm so proud of The Resident because, like, the longest story in that book is especially heinous, which is written in these tiny chunks, right? Like, it's, like, literally fragmented. Like, that is that is the structure of the novella. And then the next biggest story is The Resident, but that one is has no chunks. Like, that one is just, like, a, a traditionally structured story sort of told from, you know, beginning to end. And, like, it was hard. It was fucking hard because I was like, this is like me advancing as a writer. Like, because I I am like struggling in my life. I'm struggling. Like, I was just really struggling. And yet I was like, I'm going to make this thing whole. And this is like a thing that I will do. Um, but also I just feel like, yeah, I don't know. You're going to write what you're going to write. And this is why, like, I feel like it's so interesting to look at an artist's, a thing that I always find really pleasurable is to like read an artist's whole oeuvre. Like, I mean, especially an artist who's no longer with us, like a writer who's died. And so- you can actually literally be like, I'm going to read everything they wrote in order. And you can see like the things that are recurring, like the ticks that they have, the themes that they can't let go of, like the images that reoccur. Like, cause you're just getting like access again to like human consciousness, which I just find, I find to be really interesting. And I think is sort of one of the best ways to read. Yeah, that's so interesting. It kind of tapped into one of the questions that I have, cause I've noticed that something that in the dream house, but all of your work seems to touch on is kind of missing pieces and attachment to missing pieces of yourself. Like you have an attachment, but they're gone and kind of that uh, sort of Mm. almost like a mourning process, but not, you know, like there's a lot of question marks (laughs) to it because it's like, that's gone. I remember who I was when I had that, you know, like kind of situation. And I think that in that way, it's like, it's more a growth question, right? I guess, because it's like, it's posited as missing pieces. And then you realize that there's no way you get to A to B to C without that, right? Like you have to let things go as you gain things. It's, you know, very video game like to get through life, but (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. I mean, that's very astute. And I think actually that's just like literally aging. Like it's literally like you're just getting older and you're like experiencing like nostalgia and you experience loss and you experience grief and change and transition and like that's just I mean that will happen until you die right and I feel like there's this way in which like sometimes when you're young things feel very permanent 
And then, you know, I don't know. I feel like I remember like coming home from college after being away for a while and my parents' hair being gray and like suddenly noticing it. And certainly it had been getting gray a little bit before that, but it was like slowly while I was there. So I wasn't really noticing it. And then it was just like, oh, there's like a dramatic shift. And like, I feel like as you get older and older, right, it's like these ways in which time is passing becomes just like really dramatic and you just notice it more. And I think that like, you do then like have thoughts and like also you have clearer thoughts about like, I mean, my theory is that you have the clearest thoughts about yourself about eight to 10 years out. So like when I was in my twenties, the only part of my life I had any real perspective on was like my teens, you know? And like now Mm -hmm. that I'm entering into my late thirties, like I'm beginning to have a sense, a better sense of who I was in my twenties, you know? And like, yeah, I'm just, I mean, that's just my, this is my theory, but I, I, I feel like, you know, that when I'm able to look back with this sense of clarity and also again, you know, this question of like, what have I lost, you know? And like, what is, what are the pieces of me that are missing? I really like, but missing is maybe a strong word because it implies it's negative. It's like, what are the pieces of me that have passed on, right? And mm-hmm. like the connections that I've lost or the the things that I am grieving. And I think that and that's why like you really, had to let them go, right? Like, exactly. That's kind of a big thing that makes yeah, it, exactly. that's why I was like, it's missing, but it's not, right? Like this kind totally. of a situation. I mean, it's the it's the part of you that just like looks back at yourself in your twenties and you're like, oh, honey, I know what oh were you God. doing? Like, you know, which is like feels so clear when you <laughs> when you have yeah. that distance. But yeah, when you're 25, you're like, every decision I make is the best decision anyone mm-hmm. has ever made. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. looking back on teen me and going, wow, my decisions then were not great either. And exactly. then when you're like 35, you're like, maybe let's just put a hold on thinking that anything was the best decision. Yes, exactly. Literally, exactly, yes. I'm just going to question my motives a little bit more every time. And (laughs) hopefully that does continue. Not for everybody, I'm going to say, but hopefully it does continue throughout my life and yours, right? Like that you're kind of getting better as you go along, but also different. Um, I was thinking too, another thing that you do really well, and I think it really speaks to the nature of kind of how trauma works in the same way we're talking about how growth and aging works, kind of how trauma works for me is like there's lost time moments where you kind of are going from scene to scene and in a way that's a narrative device generally, right? But Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. definitely a non-linear approach to any of, I would say almost any of your works, not all of it, but you mentioned it before, right? And yeah. I think, too, that, like, there's also these moments, like, these key moments of escalation that stand out, right? And this is true of Lola Woods. This is true, I think, of, like I said, a lot of the work that we've talked about. But that idea of lost time and then coming back and it escalating. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, and then I remember these escalation moments. But I think that there's always something interesting about escalation because I think as a society, we have a very, like, this happened because this happened because this happened kind of way of looking at things. But with escalation, it's like, because people, you know, will be like, well, that was a bad situation. Why didn't you leave that situation? And it's like, the reason is because it escalates in a way, as you say, like the graying of your parents' hair, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like something that you don't notice it as it's happening or you do notice it, but it just starts to become your new reality. And I think that that applies to so many things in life. But I was curious if that was like an intentional thing whenever you're writing that you're kind of trying to do this. Time is missing. Here's these moments where things are getting more severe that like kind Mm -hmm. of stand out. I mean, I think this just has to do with the fact that like, again, the work that I'm interested in, but again, as a reader and as a writer is like 
the ways in which our perception fails us or misleads us. It's like time progresses. I mean, time is also fake, right? Like time is like a thing we invented, but like insofar as it's real, time progresses, you know, with unflagging regularity. We don't experience time in that way, right? It's like, maybe I'm just, you have a sexy weekend with somebody and it feels like it went by in a second, right? And it's like, oh, it was actually like really, you know, but if you spend like one hour with an unbearable person, you're like, oh my God, like I cannot take one more second of this. <laughs> um, so it's like, right, it's like time moves weird, right? Um, or, you know, yeah, like you... Um, suddenly look up from the clock and you're like, oh fuck, like I, we've been like with you've been hanging out with a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, and you're like, we've been here for like eight hours, just like sh- shooting the shit. Like it's wild how that happens. Um, or like, yeah, like you suddenly notice somebody getting older in a way that you weren't expecting, or you suddenly are like, I've gotten older, right? And all that is is just like, I mean, this is like what I almost like I feel like maybe my project or like one of my projects is like, I mean, that is the experience. It's like realism through the filter of non-realism. It's like you're living in reality. Like, you know, we, I mean, I, I I personally do not believe in actual ghosts or demons or angels or gods or anything. And so, like, I believe that I live in, like, a realist world. Like, I, I exist in a space that is untouched by supernatural or sort of science fictional elements. But also, I perceive the world through lenses of things like horror, for example, and fantasy and time moving strangely. And I think that that's sort of the project of the memoir. You know, it's like what it means to like be living in in a reality, but then like, you know, you're like, I'm actually in a haunted house story or I'm actually in a time travel story or like, you know, and I think that 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 is just, again, like the human experience, but we think of, it's like, it's like this is why like words like realism, I mean, they mean something in, in a sort of more like literary critique sense or like in a sense of world building. But like also I think that just like even the human experience is like literally reality filtered through non-reality. <laughs> I'm going to think about that sentence for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> good, great. Oh, that, was, that was good shit. That was good shit. Oh, wow. Decoded. I heard a rumor that something called Decoded was just around the corner. Decoded. Decoded. (laughs) (laughs) We are coming back for the third year in a row with our extremely cool, very dear and near to my heart, speculative anthology of all LGBTQ stories by queer and trans authors. Decoded. It is called Decoded Pride. It's at decodedpride.com. And you can pick up a subscription today for only $14.99. Or if you go to any of our social media sites on Instagram or Twitter at Bitches on Comics, or if you follow us on Patreon or support us over there on Patreon, we have discount codes already all plugged in for you and you can get it for even cheaper. So go check those out. But right now you can get it for $14.99 at decodedpride.com. And Sarah, what is Decoded? What are people going to get? They get 30 stories, comic books. You have stories of horror stories. You have fantasy stories, science mm-hmm. fiction, all of the things. You know what speculative fiction is. I don't have yeah, to tell you. Stuff that's just even just too hard to define. Oh, <laughs> Simply undefinable. Genre bending. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited this year. The, the stories, I mean, they're, they're great every year. And if you haven't bought a subscription to issue one or issue two, you what can do you so doing? right now <laughs> over at, guess what? DecodedPride.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Please go, there go now. get a subscription. 
I think it's just really neat. It's awesome to read queer and trans people's stories that are the ones they want to tell because they mm. know they can take risks with us. And I, you know, I've really seen that pay off and I'm delighted. I can't wait for people to start seeing these. We hope you'll come support us and all of the amazing creators we're getting to publish this year. We are absolutely ecstatic. Again, join us at decodedpride.com. Dot com. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Okay, well, you know what? I actually think that's a perfect segue to talking about the Lolo Woods, which, oh, right. uh, you know, we've saved for the end a little bit, but I think we've also been talking about the whole time a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, what I love about the Lolo Woods is it's literally what you just said. It's it's reality through the filter of non-reality, right? Like, okay, we're talking about this mystical, I think you called it Pennsylvania Gothic story. <laughs> uh, you also called it like body horror. And then there was another subgenre you used that I can't remember now. Um, but yeah, just good, good, good weird stuff. <laughs> and, you know, but it's also about the epidemic of sexual assault in in this world and that has, you know, pretty much been here as long as, you know, yep, us. And that is like not great. And there's something here about body autonomy, sexual violence. And and that is a thread that, you know, in your three major works, I would say, for lack of a better term, uh, when I look at her body and other parties in the dream house and the Lola Woods, those are sort of recurring themes. And again, like for me, all three reading, just so healing to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. we we can write about these horrible, real, real things that happen to us and happen around us, but we can do it through these prisms that give us different access to them, right? Like one mm-hmm. of the things I think is so powerful about your writing, and Sarah and I, again, we're texting about this yesterday, is yes, it's about sexual assault, but it's really about what does it mean to be alive around that? What do you do after you know, we don't see, for instance, in the Lola Woods, we don't see Ellen V. We don't see what happens to them. We know what happens mm-hmm. to them. Many of the readers, I think you assume, have lived that violence. And so mm-hmm. why would you need to yet again traumatize us, right? You choose to withhold that. And that, I think, is what is so powerful and so survivor-focused about your work mm-hmm. is it it doesn't seek to re-traumatize, but it does seek to re-examine trauma. And there might be some yeah. traumatizing aspects of that, but it's not the goal, right? Yeah. And so with the Lolo Woods, you know, you're working in a, a it was for, at the time, a new medium for you. It was visual. One, at one point you were like, fiction's about perspective. I was reading the back matter and you were like, but what's cool with comics is you've got, you know, the dialogue, the narrative voice and the visual. And so you've mm-hmm. got a really fertile ground for horror. And I would say you have a really fertile ground for horror around sexual abuse and psychological damage because Mm -hmm. you can show these juxtapositions in a way that is so resonant. I actually reread it this morning. I got up early and was like, you know what? I want to read Lola Woods again. (laughs) Because I I mean, at least my third time, maybe my fifth time through. (laughs) I read it again this morning too. (laughs) Yes, Sarah and I 
are obsessed. So obviously you were like on our list of people we had to talk to once I think we'd both read it. We were just like, oh my God. We already knew Carmen was brilliant, but damn, okay, fine. Be great <laughs> at comics too, I guess. Um, but you know, I guess I want to hear a little bit about how that theme has played out, particularly in the yeah. Lolo Woods, and then, you know, what it is that you think comics gave you for exploring that specific theme that maybe short stories or memoir couldn't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, obviously this was a huge formal challenge for me because, A, I had suddenly, I'd never, you know, written anything with instructions to an artist before, you know. So there were, like, a lot of pieces of it that I was like, oh, I was, like, learning as I went, right? And I was, I was I'm also getting tremendous, um, like, Joe Hill, you know, edited edited it. And was, I remember, like, one time him emailing me and being like, if you want there to be a visual surprise, put it on the even page so that you turn the page and the surprise is there. Like, don't put it on the odd page because then it'll be spoiled. Like, the reader will, like, look ahead. And I was like, see, I never would have, I never would have thought of that in a million years. You know, <laughs> like, that would have never occurred to me. It was not how prose works, right? And so it was just, like, a little education and, like, a lot of ways of thinking about writing that I that I had not thought about before. It's also my first sort of foray into, like, almost third person. It's hard to explain because, like, I think the way that comic writing operates is, like, so different than prose. But, like, you know, I was really used to, I mean, every story in my first collection, except for especially Heinous, is in first person. I default to first person almost universally. Like, that is just a, a, a way that I sort of think. I mean, and even in in the memoir where I do use second person, it's sort of as a, tra as a trauma device. So it's like, I mean, I, I feel like first person is, like, very comfortable for me as a writer, and so in some ways, there was something about A, having like two main characters, so not like one, but I was like moving between the consciousness of these like two young women. Um, and then like also thinking about the viewer, like I remember like at some point also getting some feedback from I think probably Joe as well or possibly another editor that was like, you know, you have them like biking through the woods, but like if you like show the panel or you like write the panel as being shown through like some branches, it sort of implies like a, a viewer or it's like above their head or close to their face or far away. And I was like, oh, right. We're thinking like visually about like perspective also, like not just like the viewpoint of the character, but like the literal visual perspective of like, you know, that the artist is going to render in the drawings. And so... I don't know if that, like, I think the question about, like, how does that impact the story itself is a really good one, and I'm not sure I have a really good answer. I mean, I'm sure it does. I mean, there is this, you know, in a way, there is this, like, I think third person creates a little bit of a distance, and I think there's so much of the story is about having distance from yourself, right? And, like, there being a piece of your experience that is unknown to you. So for those of you, like, you're listening and you haven't read it, like the the sort of the premise of the book is that these young women wake up after having seen a movie um, in a theater, but they have no memory of the movie happening. I should also add, this was actually a dream I had. This is like where the idea for this whole thing came from was I had a dream that was like very similar to this. So they know something has happened to them, but like there's just a blank space where the thing is. And so the whole sort of comic is them trying to figure out the mystery of like what is going on and like what happened to them in this like lost time. And so, you know, I think for me, there was a question about, I mean, not just surviving, but also like, because they, they have competing visions of what they want because one of them wants to, is like, if I can remember, I want to remember. And the other one is like, I absolutely do not want to remember. I do not want to know what happened. And I think it's crazy that you want to know what happened. Both of which I think are like really valid perspectives. This question then ends up becoming like a larger question for like other people, which is like, do you choose to remember or do you choose to, or do you, do you choose to know that you've forgotten or like be like, I just, I'm going to let this piece of me sort of go. And I think that sense of like unknowability, like something being unknown to yourself and the sense of like, and there is like some personal, there is like first person narration in it. Like the different characters have different voices, but like, yeah, I don't know. I just like, I, 
I find this question really interesting and it was one that like just was sort of deepening and, you know, not creating like judgment around like how one chooses to handle their own trauma, but like allowing space for like ways of perceiving or like ways of ways of asserting what your own needs are around something that has happened to you that was like out of your control. Yeah, I was thinking too that it's about this place that kind of can't forget its past. And I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you have an idea around that because I have this idea of like, we're the ones that haunt things, right? You know, like I'm kind Mm -hmm. of the same as you where I really don't believe in anything supernatural. Although I could be convinced, you know, whatever. (laughs) But it it wouldn't be that hard to convince me of, I don't know, just about anything, I guess. That's, you know, a natural I mean, nobody wants to be the dad who is like, there is no supernatural Nothing's thing happening, happening no, no, no. and your whole family dies, right? Like, you want to be the person who's like, I don't believe in it. You know what? Now I do. It's fine. We're leaving immediately. Get in the car. Get in the car. Get to be car. clear, nothing would make me happier than ghosts being real. Like, that would yeah. make me so happy. Like, like truly, truly, like, don't get it twisted. Like, I want there to be ghosts. Like, I, I, I am, like, fully ready and if you if I could just snap my fingers and make it happen, I would because I'm like I want to live in that world. That's fucking interesting. Oh my god! But yeah. I just I don't believe we do live in that world. Yeah, my thing is always like if I woke up tomorrow and someone was like, "Oh, you have magical powers, superpowers, whatever," I'd be like, "I fucking knew it. I knew it." <laughs> I would not be that superhero. It's like I'm so burdened. I'd be like, "Fucking finally, I have been saying." <laughs> You know? <laughs> so oh I feel like God. that's you with ghosts, Carmen. You're like, oh, fucking yeah. oh, fight yeah. me. There's <laughs> exactly, the ghost. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's that story about in The Haunting whenever uh, Robert Weiss made the film version and they went to see Shirley Jackson and they were like, okay, so it's psychological horror. Like, Eleanor's losing it, right? And then at the end of the interview, Shirley Jackson's like, that's a really good idea, but what if it's just ghosts? Oh, <laughs> and God, I thought that I that was her. like the, one of the funniest stories I'd ever heard. <laughs> I think about it all of the time because I'll mm-hmm. be writing my own work and be like, what if it's just ghosts? Like, <laughs> maybe I don't need to add all of this extra stuff because I'm definitely one of those like, oh, it was you all along and I would have gotten away with it if not for you meddling kids. Like, I like to be like very literal sometimes. Very Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I'm a very, there's Scooby-Doo moments, I'll say. So I was, curious. yeah, I was just kind of thinking about how funny it is for somebody to be like, what if it just is the thing that I said it was at the beginning of the story? Mm-hmm. Basically, just to continue on this idea of like the way that we attach these designations, I guess, to places as well as we do people. Mm. So there will be places that I go where I feel so uncomfortable and I'm like, I don't want to be here. And the reason is always that something happened there and the space itself reminds me of that. And you can't, it's not, it's not easy to explain stuff like that to people and to be like, it makes me uncomfortable to be here because like, 10 years ago, I had an uncomfortable experience. And like, it doesn't mean that you should always stay away from those places, I don't think, because you can grow from going back to them and being like, why am I so uncomfortable? Because that chair is like positioned. You know how it is. You have these different triggers and things where you like kind of go into Mm -hmm. the void for a hot second. So I was curious about how that does connect in Lola Woods because it's so set in this very specific place, a place that, you know, that is inspired by places that you were familiar with. Well, I mean, I think what you're describing is sort of what I mentioned earlier, which is like you're having an experience of a haunting in, again, to be clear, what I believe is like a realist world. So like, I think we think of haunting in this very narrow sense, but I think it actually, it's more interesting to think of it in a far more expansive sense, which is like, that places hold meaning 
and that like meaning can accumulate and that, you know, history is not lost. Like history, I mean, this is like, I'm also to be clear, like, this is not like my idea. Like, you know, lots of amazing <laughs> writers have written about, right, the ways in which like, you know, history sort of exists, you know, and I, I, I write sort of in the memoir about this a little bit. And I also have talked about this a lot when I, I actually taught a haunted house class a few years ago. And this was really interesting to me how like, you know, different places, like different countries and like different cultures have different relationships with their own past and like think, especially like bad things that have happened in their own past. And so you have like some places where like, you know, you'll turn a corner and they'll be like, here's where Nazis took somebody, you know? And like, here's where this like awful thing happened. Or like, this is the place where like this brutal, terrible thing happened. And then you have countries who are like determined or like cultures determined to just like be like, nope, I don't know her. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. You know, we've never done anything bad ever. And so I feel like there's something about the past and also just the sense that like, yeah, like, like places accumulate meaning, like smells have meaning, you know. And sometimes I think that you can also have an experience, which I imagine is probably like when people say that they've like felt a presence or they feel a ghost. It's like they're experiencing something possibly on a subliminal or, you know, subconscious level that is reminding them of something else that made them afraid or made them sad or is like invoking some other place. And I think that when you, I don't know, if you like walk into a place and it has a smell and you're suddenly transported back to when you were eight, like that's a haunting you know? Yeah. And like, when you go to like, I don't know, like I went to my old high school a few years ago and it was, it was different in some ways, but it was basically unchanged. Like I was like, the lockers are the same. The walls are the same. It smells the same. And it was like really having like almost like an out of body kind of haunting experience. And so I feel like, yeah, like place is important in this way because it does, it does like accumulate meaning and it does, I think, hold on to that meaning. And so, you know, when I think about, like, I mean, obviously this book, I mean, I didn't grow up in Centralia. Like, Centralia, you know, is sort of, of like, a past generation. You know, Centralia being the um, the town that's sort of perpetually on fire. Uh, mm-hmm. That is a real town that I then fictionalize as the town of Shudder to Think in um, the Lolo Woods. But, you know, for me, I think it was just this idea also of, like, because then I was, like, doing a lot of research about Centralia. Because, you know, all I really knew was, like, you know, when you were in high school. Because I grew up in, you know, not too far away from there. Like, it, you know, the cool thing to do would be, like, skip school, go with your friends, take dramatic black and white photos at Centralia, which is, like, leaking smoke, uh, you know, and covered in graffiti and, like, mostly abandoned. And I feel like that was, like, my experience as, as a teen. But, like, also, like, people lived there. And it was, like, you know, there was, like, an, basically, like, a massive environmental disaster, which also, I should add, is, like, very common. Like, Centralia is kind of a famous example in the U.S., but, like, this stuff happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, there are lots of, like, places all over the world where this exact thing has happened, where, like, a coal seam has lit on fire and, like, created this, like, massive environmental catastrophe that has affected and killed a lot of people or, like, harmed them in other ways. And so, you know, for me, it was just, like, this idea that, like, corporations infect the land. Land can be haunted by capitalism. You know, the earth can literally eat you alive, right? Um, That, like, you know, you are haunted by the actions of your elders and like the action, the the things, things that happened before you were born or when you can't remember, or like, you know, there's just like all these ways in which, well, this is not like, you know, this is just like, yeah, things connect to other things. Duh. You know, it's like, it all, it all comes together. It's like that guy (laughs) with the chart, you know, it's like, it's all, it's all, it all means, you know? Yeah. I guess for me, I just feel like 
that piece of it is just so important. And I wanted to sort of create a story in which like these sort of teenage girls are like having this experience and this revelation in real time and, and are implicated in it in real time. Like they're not just like observing it. It's like happened to them as well. Right. And so they're like beginning to understand, I think the ways in which power structures fail you and like what that means for you as a person, which I think is a very like, as a, that is a moment in adolescence where that happens, where you like begin to understand the ways in which like, you know, the world fucking sucks. And yeah. this is that moment, right? And the power of questioning it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They reclaim their voices and their power through questioning it, even though, as you you say, and I think is such a beautiful tension in, in the book, is they're not sure they want the same result, right? They're right. not sure they want the same information, but they're willing to ask that question of themselves and yeah. each other, you know? And yeah. that's... Yeah. It's cool. I, you know, I love anything. I think Sarah and I both do. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say all three of us do. That is like teen girls just fucking being awesome, especially teen girls mm-hmm. who are Latinx, who are black. Because I, I just think that teen girls are they're the ethos of our fucking whole society because they're the ones who get fucking ragged on, you know. And it's like it's true. I, I had such fun writing this book, and I really loved these characters. Like, and again, it's weird because it's like it really wasn't so many ways. Like, it felt like I was this was a new way of writing because I just I hadn't like. I wonder if the third person, the sense of the third person, or like the equivalent of the sense of the third person, was giving me space to look at them in a slightly different way mm. that I like don't fully know how to articulate because it was like a different experience, and I felt like I had these two wonderful characters who I was like getting to know. And then also, like, in some ways, like, in many ways are, like, me. I mean, like, you know, I mean, in the sense that, like, all writing, like, you know, there's always, like, a piece of you that exists somewhere. And so, like, I feel like a lot of the, the experiences they talk about or the questions they've had that they have or the ways that they think, you know, in some ways are, like, me. Not always, but often. Um, but they also felt in this way, like, a little unknowable to me, which I sort of loved. And I really loved getting to write them. And it was, like, a really, really wonderful experience. And, yeah, it was. And I think also, I, I also wonder if, like, the art has something to do with that as well. I was going to say, Danny's art rules. <laughs> no, no, the art is fucking beautiful. And, like, I remember just, like, the weirdness, because like, this has never happened before, of, like, sending away a script. And then I got back, like, here are the pages. And I was like, oh, shit, that's them. Like, like it was almost like I was meeting them or something, mm-hmm. even though I had written them. Like, it was, like, I think that was piece of it, too, was, like, that visual element that, like, I normally, normally no one's just handing me, like, pages of like the story that I wrote <laughs> profoundly like illustrated as if it was in my brain like that's also with its own very interesting experience so. oh what a trip with a so perfect fun. perfect color palette too oh, oh yeah no it's yeah. gorgeous I mean I could not be more pleased with the, with this uh, visually I think it's like perfect both Tamara and Danny just absolutely rule anything they touch is just gold so and then yeah. you add you and it's like the perfect creative team you can hope for <laughs> seriously I, I mean the Lola Woods was such a delight my partner got it in the hardcover for me yep. as a present I got for that my birthday. Too. Yeah, and Aww. it's so beautiful. The way that the the wraparound cover works, uh, the gorgeous. dust cover, yeah. the way that the actual cover is, then the print paper. Y'all, if you can afford it, go buy it. If you can't afford it, go to your <laughs> library because it is there and it is so stunning. It is absolutely, I mean, I think required reading, especially in comics. I mean, in general, especially in horror comics, especially in feminist horror comics, all the more so, <laughs> which is absolutely right up our alley. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Lola Woods. I will say that uh, you know I have a novel that I've been working on and you know querying, and I get lots of like, oh my god, it's so great, but I don't like this one thing, so fuck you. Um, you know, no one's quite that mean. They're they're just like, good luck, tiger. <laughs> no. You know, which is like, oh, it's all good. You know, I I think there are many paths of of success and happiness, but 
you know, part of me wondered, oh, is there is there room for like the way that I see the world and the way that I write and the undeniable queerness and the unflinching examination of trauma and pain. And, you know, you get, you've given me so much hope and like people are actually so hungry for this and yeah. it's about connecting with them in the right way. And, you know, a lot of success is timing, right? Like I'm not, I'm not a fool. I know that, <laughs> but I think it's been really neat, you know, revisiting your work and diving even deeper and talking to you today just being like, wow, you know, there is, there's, there's such a need for all of us. I think, I think yeah. queer people are hungry to hear each other's voices and to see ourselves in it. Cause I know I had that reaction to your work where I was like, Oh shit. Oh, someone's going to use the word cunt. Thank you. Thank you for using the word cunt. Yeah. Finally. Very reliably, I will use the word cunt. Absolutely. Was, okay, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I was riding on my scooter with my partner who was on her scooter. We both have electric scooters. And I was like, I've been reading, screaming down the street. I've been reading Carmen Maria Machado and I'm so happy she uses the word cunt all the time. My partner's like, what? And I'm like, cunt. And there's like, a little kid on the corner and I was like no they're gonna learn the word sooner or later you know it's fine I mean it is honestly one of my favorite I don't even know what you call it's it like I guess it's not a bad word but like yeah I, I truly love it and I am trying to normalize it as much as possible so yeah yes well I'm I'm on the agenda I'm in great one small child at a time on the <laughs> yeah, corner, one on the street kid corner. It's like, I'm going to go tell my mom that word. Let's see what yeah. happens. Uh, they're like, well, don't go near the queers anymore. No, I swear. It's just just the word from the book. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it really is just so powerful. Your, your work is delightful. I'm very excited to hear that you're working on a novel. And I think, you know, what else is coming up that you can tell us about? And then where can folks find you on social if they want to? Oh, so many things I can't tell you. I cannot tell <laughs> yeah. you about. But I am working on I am working on a new book, which I sold a few years ago that I'm that I owe to my publisher, <laughs> uh, which I'm hoping to finish at the end of this year. You didn't hear that. But yeah, I I, I just did a residency. I'm doing another residency in like a month. And I, uh, I have been working on poems because that's how much I'm, I'm procrastinating because I've like changed genres entirely. <laughs> like, I'm, just like, I'm just, I'm just like, what else could I do? Interpretive dance? Like, I don't know. You know? Um, and also like this, not the novel I'm working on is not the book I sold. The novel I'm working on is also like a thing I'm cheating on my sold book with. Um, but the sold book is a, is a collection of linked stories called The Brief and Fearful Star that will be coming out from Knopf in a few years, assuming I, I hand it in, which I hope to do. Um, don't tell my editor, but yes, I think, hopefully, yes, it will be in soon. Yeah, and then I I feel like everything else I can't talk about. Mm-hmm. But I am, I'm very busy. I will assure you that I'm incredibly busy. <laughs> <laughs> and so busy that it's a real problem for me. And yeah. Um, well, one thing I do know is coming out, and I did want to like just squeeze in here at the last minute, oh, yeah. is it came from the closet, which is the collection oh, yes. of mm-hmm. essays about horror written by LGBTQIA plus authors. And so you're writing about Jennifer's body and that comes out in October mm-hmm. and I have already pre-ordered it. I am so excited. <laughs> what can you tell yeah. us? What's the, what tease can you give us on that? Yeah, it's such a great anthology. I have the whole thing and the whole thing is great. So definitely if you're listening to this, pre-order it or order it um, because it is it is really, it's just a great book in general. So yeah, it's this really wonderful, it's from Feminist Press. It's this wonderful anthology of, yeah, queer writers, like queer and trans writers writing on horror um, and horror film. And I, yeah, they asked me to do it and I was immediately like, please let me write about Jennifer's body. Like, please, please, please. Because it is like, I have so many thoughts about this movie and I feel like I could write a really good essay about it. And I'm 
I'm, and I, and I did, (laughs) I'm really proud of the essay. And I, it was, you know, it was sort of about Jennifer's body as a sort of, sort of bisexual text, um, not just like generically queer, but like specifically bisexual um, and sort of how, like sort of what it means to me in, in that sense and kind of giving it a close read in that way. So yeah, that's, that is kind of the, that is the premise of the, of the essay and the whole book is great and it was a real joy to read and I just was really, it was just like so much fun to write. I had a great time doing it. Well, I can't wait to read it. Um, you've also prompted like 75 more questions I have. So we'll have to have you yeah. back on the pod. Because uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. just to talk about Jennifer's body, obviously. Because <laughs> yeah, that would have totally. been the whole hour. Yes. Totally. <laughs> well, and as Sarah and I have, have always say, we're like, oh, yeah, you're just a guest. LOL. Now you live here. You're part of the family. You're one of the bitches. Aww. Like, you're welcome <laughs> anytime. Um, we sometimes get notes that are like, hello, lovely bitches. So you're one of the Aww, lovely bitches. Love um, we do too. At first I was like ballsy. And then I was like, you know what? I love it. Perfect. No changes. Uh-huh. Where can people find you online? Oh, I can be found really only on Instagram. And who knows how long that'll last. But I do enjoy <laughs> Instagram. I am on Instagram. Uh, it's Carmen M. Machado on Instagram. fantastic and I will link to that in the show notes and I will also link to it came from the closet because y'all need to be picking that one up yes thank you so much Carmen Uh, again thank you Juliet for helping put this together thank you Kate for editing our sound and making us sound great I also want to shout out our other host Monica she wasn't able to be here today that's because she's down in the trenches fighting the good fight she works at Planned Parenthood and she's kicking ass yes awesome oh my god Monica's our hero fucking bless her indeed right indeed so she is doing lots of long calls and helping people get things set up before things get even worse so thank goodness for Monica Uh, yep thank you Kate thank you listeners thank you patrons Sarah you know I think you're the fucking best yeah. And I love you all. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at at bitchesoncomics. Our website is, brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes, and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.